Today is Tuesday, December 28th, and this is William Michael of the Classical Liberal Arts Academy. I hope that you and your family have enjoyed uh, Merry Christmas thus far, and after being away from my desk a few days, I'm working to get back into the routine. So I wish you all a Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year. In this talk, uh, while I'm out for a walk today, I'd like to discuss the danger of disobedience. And I should say the deceptive danger of disobedience. If you're active in Catholic, uh, I should say, social media discussions and aware of the, the talking heads on Catholic social media and in Catholic news media, most of which is, is not official church representation, but individuals posting their own opinions, building their own online communities, promoting their own theories, and so on, you'll know that it's very common to see Catholics speaking out against the Pope and bishops of the Church. As a Catholic convert, or I should say as a, as a convert to Catholicism, I find this to be one of the most ridiculous things imaginable. Because obedience to the hierarchy of the church is the most essential point of the Catholic life. To deny the authority of the Pope and bishops is to deny the Catholic faith. To deny the authority of the Pope is to deny the Incarnation itself, because Christ came into the world. He took on the form of a man and humbled himself and lived a life that was characterized by obedience. St. Paul teaches in Philippians 2, which we recite weekly in the Liturgy of the Hours. St. Paul explains in Philippians chapter 2 how Christ, though he was in the form of God, not concerned with his own glory but willing to save man and glorify his Father in love, voluntarily emptied himself of all of his divine privileges and and took upon himself the form of a slave, that is, of man, a slave with reference to God. And Christ was willing to come into the world and take upon himself the form of a slave, 
that is of a man, and to live an obedient life as a slave, a slave to God, his Father, to set an example for us that we should see and appreciate the virtue of obedience. St. Paul says that he endured the cross because the path of obedience led him to crucifixion. He accepted any consequences of obedience, and that's what the Christian life is. It's a life of simple, childlike obedience that accepts any consequences that lie in the path of that obedience. Yesterday was Monday, and if you pray the rosary daily, you'll know that yesterday we prayed and meditated on the joyful mysteries. And the first of the joyful mysteries is the Annunciation. And if you understand how to meditate on the mysteries, you know that when we meditate on the Annunciation, we focus on a particular grace and we pray for a particular grace related to the Annunciation. And that grace that we pray for is humility. Because the Incarnation, which took place at the time of the Annunciation, when Christ was actually conceived in the womb of the Blessed Virgin Mary, that act of Incarnation that took place was an act of humility for us to meditate on and imitate in our own lives. If you remember through the Gospels, the Apostles occasionally argued with one another about who would be the greatest in the Church. Who would be the greatest? Who would take over when Christ ascended into heaven when he returned to his glory. And they often argued about this, and there are a number of passages in the Gospels where this is an issue that has to be dealt with, and what Christ teaches them is that they need to resist this desire, this human corrupt desire to exalt themselves over their neighbors, over their brothers, but rather to imitate him in that self-emptying by which he took upon himself the form of a slave. And he says, whoever wishes to be greatest among you must be servant or slave of all. And the Christian life is a life of voluntary slavery, with slavery 
simply being a relation marked by total obedience, humility, and obedience. The motivation for that obedience is faith. This is why St. Paul says, the just or the righteous, those who obey, shall live by a principle of faith. And what's meant by faith is a persuasion, a conviction, a certainty that God will fulfill everything that He promises to those who are obedient. Because all of God's promises, all of His promises, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, eternal life, all of His promises are made only to those who imitate His Son and are obedient. And so the Christian life ultimately is a question of obedience, a life of obedience. Now, the temptation that we'll face is not so much in obedience to some idea of a spiritual being that is invisible and exists in a galaxy far, far away. That idea of some kind of spiritual obedience or a simple spirit of monotheism where one is willing to acknowledge that only one God exists is not Christianity. That's simply monotheism. That's a simple religious position, but that's not Christianity. That's the first commandment, to be sure. The first commandment is that you'll have no other gods but the Creator alone. You'll serve no other gods, recognize no other no other gods. That's not the entire duty of the Christian life. That's only the first commandment. The Ten Commandments are the principal, the chief commandments. But many of these Ten Commandments contain within them many other commandments. For example, the commandment, honor thy father and thy mother Or as St. Paul states it, obey your parents. The command to honor 
your father and your mother, to honor the authority of your parents, contains within it all of the commands of your father and your mother. And so when my earthly father speaks, the commandment, honor thy father and thy mother, speaks at the same time. And there is no obeying God that does not include or, or that does not include obedience to one's father and mother, honoring one's father and mother. And note the commandment does not say, in fact, Scripture rejects this idea that obedience is owed until we hit the magical age of 18 years old and then we're free to do whatever we want. That's not supported by the content of sacred Scripture. In fact, this past Sunday, if you paid attention to the readings at Mass on the Feast of the Holy Family, we read from a passage of Sirach, which you might want to look up. Look it up in a missal or on the USCCB website, you can see the daily readings. But you'll see there that the honor owed to parents is owed throughout life. Not only when we're children, but throughout their lives, throughout our lives, even through their old age. Obedience to parents is one commandment, and yet it contains many daily commands to be obeyed, a relationship to be maintained, to recognize the authority of our parents who gave us life, who were the instruments of our creation, apart from whom, no matter what we would raise as criticism against them, we would not exist to even have any opinions. Another command that does something similar is the command to not covet. In fact, the last two commands, which which deal with covetousness, if you'd like to get into the meaning of these last two commands, what I recommend is that you Look up St. Thomas Aquinas' commentary on the Ten Commandments. If you need help finding it, just get in touch with me and I'll, I'll share a link. But St. Thomas comments on the Ten Commandments and he explains that these last two commandments, which simply command us to not covet, do not covet thy neighbor's property, Do not covet thy neighbor's wife. Two simple commands, and yet they're profound commands because they contain many, many commands. For example, to not covet 
has to do with our affections, has to do with our thoughts, has to do with what we see, what we think about, what we listen to, what we read. Because the effects of those things either discourage or promote covetous thoughts. Scripture teaches us that a man should not even look at a woman for fear of arousing covetousness. Jesus warns that if a man even lusts after a woman in his heart, he has committed adultery. And what he means by that is really that he has broken the commandment, thou shalt not covet. The desire to be equal to all others is covetousness. The desire to be greater than others is covetousness. This is not my opinion or my interpretation. This is what St. Thomas teaches in his commentary. And so we see that even in the command, you shall not covet, we come back again to this idea of obedience and humility. To covet our neighbor's house or to covet riches beyond what's necessary for ourselves, for our own simple, natural needs. To exalt ourselves, to try to exalt ourselves above others, to want to talk about our salary or our title or our degrees or position and exalt ourselves above others is covetousness. It's the opposite of the spirit of Christ, which we're commanded by St. Paul to have in ourselves. Paul said, have this mind in you, which was also in Christ. And that mind is a mind of obedience, of humility. This spirit of obedience is the source of peace in the Christian life. The ability to mind one's own business, the ability to accept one's own place, to not meddle in other people's affairs, to not concern oneself with responsibilities that belong to a superior, is a source of peace in this life. To understand that God is not going to hold any of us accountable for the responsibilities of one of our superiors is a source of peace. There will be superiors who are set in superior positions by God's providence. Some of them will be faithful servants to God, not to us, to God. And they will be rewarded for their faithful service by God. And there are others who are set into positions of authority in God's providence and they will 
choose to not be faithful and diligent in those responsibilities and they will be judged and dealt with by God alone. And it's none of our business. Jesus actually teaches us to not be concerned about this, but to voluntarily seek out the lowest place. He doesn't teach us that we need to try to ascend some kind of social rank system or climb a social ladder as if doing so in some way will glorify him. He isn't concerned about being worshipped by the world's celebrities or pro-athletes or millionaires. He isn't concerned with us becoming wealthy so that with our wealth and fame and influence and praise, we can tip the hat to the, to the quote-unquote man upstairs as if that's the means by which he's glorified. He doesn't ask us to try to exalt ourselves as if that will somehow benefit him. He asks us to do the opposite. He tells us, whenever you attend a banquet, and of course this is, this is spiritual teaching that has many applications. He says, whenever you attend a banquet, take for yourself the lowest seat at the table. And so that's a principle of Christian living. That any time we enter into a situation, whether it's life itself, a career, education, a social event, church attendance, whatever it is, the Spirit of Christ would move us to take a low not even a low, but the lowest seat. To be humble. To assume that we're no more important or better than anyone else, that no one needs to hear our voice in the room. To take a humble seat and be quiet. And, he goes on to say, if it is God's will or the will of others around you that you should be raised up into a place of greater prominence, greater authority, greater honor. That's first of all for them to decide, not you. And if you actually are deserving and not only deserving, but if God actually wills that you be invited to a higher place, that's the appropriate way to take such a position. And if we look back through history, we'll find that the saints always took the lowest position and they were always called up to higher positions and not only did they take the lower position, but when they were called up, because they actually loved the lowest seat, because they loved humility, 
When they were called up to higher seats, they tried to resist it. They declined invitations. They turned down promotions. They argued that they weren't fit for the positions they were being assigned to, and they tried with all their might to remain in the lowest seat. And they often had to be commanded by superiors to take higher positions. The saints were characterized by this spirit of humility and obedience. Obedience to Christ and then obedience to the men or women set over them in this life in the providence of God. Living a life of humility motivated by a principle of faith, which again is certainty that God would fulfill the promises that he makes to those who are obedient. Now, as I was saying before, it's, it's pretty easy for us to pledge obedience to the creator of the universe. For one thing, he's distant, invisible, And it's pretty easy to talk about honoring the creator of the world. But as I said, his commandments enter into temporal affairs, temporal relationships, human relationships. And that's where our obedience really gets tested. We're told that we're to love God And we're to love our neighbor for God's sake. And that again is the language of faith. We're to love our neighbor because God says so. Not because our neighbor is worthy of our love. Not because loving our neighbor will bring us rewards from our neighbor or from our fellow men. But we're to love our neighbor because we love God. And God says that we are to love our neighbor. And to love our neighbor doesn't mean to delight in our neighbor. It simply means to always do good to our neighbor and never evil. To never return evil for evil, but to always do unto others what we would have others do unto us. And more importantly, to do unto others what we expect or desire God to do to us. We show our love for God. We show our faith. We show our hope, the three theological virtues. We manifest these virtues by loving God and our neighbor by obeying God and our superiors in this life. Obedience 
is a matter of the will. Obedience is not a matter of reasoning or understanding, not even of truth, but of will. When a a parent gives a child a command, there's no debate. The father is not saying that I believe that this is the best course of action. I'm going to pause this for a minute because a police car is coming through the background. Obedience is an issue of the will. When one is told to obey another, he is commanded to do the will of that other person. It does not matter whether or not he agrees with that other person's will. In fact, it's assumed to some degree that he disagrees. Because we rarely talk about disobedience or obedience except when we disagree. That's when obedience becomes difficult. Obedience becomes difficult when our will is averse to the will of the person giving us a command. That's the whole point of obedience. That's the whole challenge of obedience. It's assumed that what's difficult about obedience is that we choose to do something that is not our will. We do the will of another person, and that is what it means to be a slave. A slave is a person who does the will of another. The life of slavery is characterized by a life of obedience. A slave has no will of his own, but he constantly serves the will of his master. Obedience is the spirit of slavery. The spirit of slavery is the spirit of humility. The spirit of humility is the spirit of Christ. And again, St. Paul says, Have this mind in you, which was in Christ Jesus. So we're to understand in this life who our superiors are. And we're to obey them for God's sake. Now sometimes superiors are chosen. They're optional. Sometimes superiors are set over us by nature or by divine providence. They're not chosen. An example of Natural superiors would be our parents. They're set over us by birth. Their authority over us has to do with 
their being the source of our existence, their authority over us is natural. And that's why obedience to parents is called natural piety. God is another natural authority over us. He's set over us by the fact that he's the creator of the world. We see God set as authority over us in the commandments and we're threatened with punishment for disobedience of his will. And we see in the commandments also our parents set over us and we're threatened with punishment for disobedience to their will and we're we're promised blessings for our obedience to parents. St. Paul actually comments and says this is the first command that comes with a promise command to honor our fathers and mothers. These relationships we have no control over. They're natural. They're lifelong. And we're commanded to be obedient. Even, again, in the rosary we meditate on the finding of Jesus in the temple. And we see that Jesus is in the temple. He says, I must be about my father's business. And then we read that he returns home with Joseph and Mary and was obedient to them. That's a little illustration of this spirit of obedience found in the Incarnation. The Son of God, whose business it is to be in the temple, is willing to go home with Joseph and Mary and subject himself to them for another 18 years. That was when he was 12 years old and his public ministry didn't begin until he was 30 At the wedding feast of Cana, for example, we see him still subject to his mother as a 30-year-old man. So this 18-year-old nonsense is clearly disproven by the example of Christ himself. It doesn't matter that someone is financially independent. There's really no such thing as being financially independent because we're not born into the world as individuals. We're born into the world as members of a community. Religious community, domestic community, political community. And we're always accountable to the community. But then there are also voluntary relationships we enter into, where our obedience is promised in exchange for some benefits. This is a good example of this would be in 
American citizenship. America offers its citizens many benefits in exchange for obedience to the laws. If one does not wish to obey those laws, he is free to leave America. And if he chooses to remain in America and break the conditions of his agreement by disobeying the laws, then he'll be punished and fined or put in prison. In short, he'll have those benefits revoked if he will not fulfill his side of the contract. He's free to leave. But he's not free to remain in America to take American benefits and violate the terms of the contract between America and her citizens. And this is what political science deals with in the classical sense. But the duties of citizenship are voluntary. They're voluntary because a person receives benefits in exchange for pledged allegiance. And that's why when we were in school, if you went to a public school or maybe even a private school, you may have stood up every morning and pledged your allegiance to the flag and to the republic for which the flag stands as a sign. You pledged your allegiance. You pledged your obedience. This was the condition of your being worthy of the benefits of American citizenship. To take the benefits of the government and refuse obedience is contrary to the Christian life and disobedient to God's commands. To understand that our government operates by means of a constitutional democracy with scheduled elections, and to understand that in our country an elected official has the authority of a king in the sense that the election of the people is the means by which the governing authority is established, After the election, when we see Christians speaking disrespectfully or defiantly with regard to elected officials, we see simple disobedience to authority. You can can sort of make light of it because we get wrapped up in these party politics. Or Or we imagine that, well, there's going to be another election in four years, so... He's not really our our ruler. He's just temporary. And that's true, but you're disobeying the temporary ruler. So it still doesn't justify the behavior. You're still dishonoring 
the man who in God's providence is set over you as an American citizen as your president. You're defying or mocking laws that are established by your constitutional democracy, which is the only government that you live under. It is your government. The officials are your real-life secular rulers, and your obedience to them is the only obedience that exists in your life with respect to governing authorities. And the duty to obey governing authorities is explicitly commanded in the apostolic age by both Christ himself in the Gospels and by the Apostles. You can go look up Romans chapter 13. And I recommend you do go look up Romans chapter 13 and read it. And remember this, as you read that, as you read St. Paul making it crystal clear that Christians are to obey their rulers on earth. Remember that St. Paul's ruler was the wicked emperor Nero. And that did not affect St. Paul's teaching one bit. Nero was the ruler. He was to be prayed for. He was to be obeyed in all things. This is also true with respect to employment. It's often amazing to see the change in spirit in a person that takes place from before they're hired, when they're applying for a job, and once they've become comfortable in that job. When they're applying for the job, They're flattering, humble, compliant, compromising, willing to accept whatever terms of employment the employer offers them. They sign the contract. They agree to terms in exchange for a paycheck. They promise obedience to a superior in exchange for a paycheck. But then once they get that position, it's as if they forget that job interview, they forget that contract, and they imagine that they're now equals or even superior to their bosses, to their employer. And they begin to ignore things the boss says. They begin to ignore company policies, which is effectively disobedience to superiors, exalting themselves above their superiors with respect to their work environment, which again is not consistent with a Christian spirit or the will of God. They continue to take the benefit but choose to deny 
the obedience that they promised when they accepted employment. And this is simple disobedience. And of course, this is true in the Catholic Church, most importantly. When someone comes into the Catholic Church, the Catholic Church offers them all of the benefits of the New Covenant, all of the benefits of the sacramental life, all of the benefits that Christ obtained for and delivered to His Church on earth, a church that is governed by human beings, chosen in his own providence. He makes all of those benefits, all of those spiritual blessings available in the church through the ministry of the hierarchy, the living I should emphasize the living hierarchy of the church. If we choose to seek those benefits from the church, we pledge obedience to the hierarchy of the church. And to take those benefits and not render that obedience is simple disobedience. If you wish to disobey a superior, you must forfeit all of the benefits that he or she offers. If you wish to be excused from voluntary relations where you are the inferior and you are obliged to offer obedience to obtain benefits you desire, to be excused from that relationship, to be refused from that duty of obedience, you must forfeit all of the benefits that you seek and receive from that authority. A good example of this can be found in the life of St. Francis of Assisi. St. Francis famously wanted to devote his life to religion. He had a father who was a merchant who wanted his son to follow in his own business or trade and commanded it. St. Francis's father commanded that he work in the family business. And St. Francis received benefits from his father. He received money, he received clothing, he received food and housing. And as long as Francis accepted or sought the benefits from his father, he owed his father obedience. And when 
St. Francis came to the conclusion that he wanted to devote his life to religion and that he could not work with and for his father, he had to forfeit all of the benefits that his father offered him. A very great sacrifice. And St. Francis went to the extent, as his life famously tells us, where he stripped naked in the presence of the bishop, I believe it was, in the presence of his parents and neighbors, stripped naked and accepted those terms. He accepted the fact that if he was to pursue religion, he could not accept any of the benefits offered by his father because that was the only just way for him to not obey his father and work for him. Now some may say, but what about obeying your parents? No. Obedience to parents is conditional. Obedience to parents is conditional. If you learn about religious life, not anyone can choose religious life. There are impediments to religious vocations and if a person is needed by his parents, he is not allowed to enter a religious vocation. So this, this, this conditional obligation to parents, this conditional duty to obey parents, can only be dispensed of when those parents have no need of the support of a child. There are impediments to these things. The bishop could have told Francis, put your clothes on and go back home. Your parents need you. But the, the reality was, his father was a wealthy man. His father didn't need him at all. He was part of his father's plan to be wealthy and prosperous, but his father didn't need Francis's service at home. And therefore, it was permissible in the judgment of the bishop that Francis leave his father and mother, come out from under their authority, to take upon himself vows of poverty, chastity, and obedience to live a religious vocation. But that's not unconditional. And the commandment to honor your father and mother would still stand if they were in need. But we see a good example of a just person understanding that there's no justification for disrespect towards a superior, for disobedience towards a superior, so long as one continues to seek the benefits offered by that superior. Now, the topic of this talk was the danger, the deceptive danger of disobedience. And that's what I'd like to get to here. Obviously, there's a lot of issues in what I've talked about so far that we could flesh out and get into. And, and these all directly affect our daily lives. 
But what I want to talk about is the deceptive danger of disobedience. Whenever we talk about obedience to superiors, there's always someone who raises an objection. The objection is always, but what if a superior commands us to do something that's not God's will? What if a superior commands us to do something that's not God's will? Now, when a person asks that question, they present a false dilemma in almost all situations. It's not an honest question. And they present us with a false dilemma. A false controversy. Because what they mean is this. If my superior commands me to do something that I don't believe is God's will, don't I have the right to disobey? And the answer is no. Now, the false dilemma that they present is this. What they're, what they're asking when they say, what if an authority commands me to do something that's not God's will? Don't I have the right to disobey? And what they, what they mean is, don't I have the right to continue taking the benefits of that relationship and disobeying? And the answer to that question is no. You don't have that right. But that's the right that they're actually fighting for. What they, when people raise that objection and they say, don't I have a right to disobey if they command me to do something that's not God's will? They want others to tell them, yes, you are right to disobey the authority because what they say is not God's will. You are right to disobey them. But that's really not what they're asking because you'll see that they insist on continuing to receive the benefits that they seek from that authority and they wish to seek them while disobeying that authority. They're not asking the true question. They're not going back to the nature of that relationship. They're not going back to the contract, as it were, that exists between an inferior and a superior. They're not asking the right question. They're asking a false question that's not possible. They're asking, can I continue to receive the benefits and disobey? And, and that's primarily accomplished through dishonesty, through lying, through sneaky behavior. Because if you openly disobeyed, you'd likely get punished or fired and you would have the benefits taken away from you. But they don't want to have the benefits taken away from them. So what they want to do, instead of giving up those benefits and being free from obedience, 
They want to keep the benefits and disobey. And this is normally done in secret. They keep both. They want to keep their freedom to do their own will, but take their master's benefits. And that's unjust. That's never God's will. But in modern society, especially in political circles or in ecclesiastical circles or in domestic issues, the question of disobedience is a dishonest and unjust question. The solution, the true solution, the just solution is very simple. And we see an example of it in the life of Jesus. We see an example of it in the life of Francis of Assisi. The just solution, when a superior commands us to do something that is not God's will, is to immediately forfeit all the benefits sought from that superior to resign, as it were. To say, I will no longer seek these benefits from you because you ask me to do something that I am not willing to do. My obedience to you is pledged up to this point, but I cannot go beyond this point. And therefore, because I cannot give you the obedience that this position requires, I resign this position and all of its benefits. That's the just thing to do. It's very simple. It's very peaceful. And that's the option that a just man has any time that he's asked to do something that's disobedient to God. But as I said, that's never what's asked when people ask this question. A child, for example... And obviously, it's usually not an eight-year-old asking such a question. It's usually an older child living at home, living off his parents, receiving all kinds of benefits from his parents, who is going to claim to be offended by some command his parents make and insist that he doesn't have to obey this command because his father doesn't have the right to make this command. A father doesn't have to respect that complaint. The child can renounce all benefits. But he won't. He can't. He's not willing to do so. And what we'll see is his objection really isn't very serious because if he's required to renounce all of his benefits received from his parents... He won't. He won't renounce those benefits. In fact, he'll admit by his behavior that he is dependent on that father. And yet he will refuse obedience. Now we'll say, but what if the father is commanding sin? And the first response to that is, how often does a father command his children to sin? So first of all, it's almost a ridiculous proposal. His father's commanding him to steal. 
to kill someone, to commit adultery, to commit idolatry, to break the Sabbath? What, what command, what sin do we see parents commanding their children to do? And if you can think of some isolated example, realize it's an isolated example. That's the point. Normally, there's simply a disagreement. And what the parent asks the child to do is contrary to the child's will. And the child confuses his own will with God's will. The child is dependent on the father. There are many reasons why fathers command certain things of their children. And children are to obey their parents. Unless they are willing and able legally, to renounce all of those benefits received and completely separate themselves from any dependence on their parents, which no children, especially today, are eager to do, though they're all eager to disobey and plead their rights. They want freedom from obedience with all the benefits of obedience. They hate their parents, but they love their parents' benefits. That's normally the context of this question. The same thing happens in the church. We have Catholics with a certain will. That will is contradicted by the actual hierarchy of the church to whom they owe obedience. And they pretend that the command of a pope or of bishops is contrary to God's will. And this is, this is almost always ridiculous. The, the problem with this complaint is that it is never demonstrated. If you know what the word demonstrate means, to prove that it is necessarily true, It is never demonstrated that what's commanded them is actually contradictory to God's will. That is never demonstrated. They are simply arguing that their interpretation of God's will is the only true interpretation and that the interpretation of God's will by the Pope and bishops is false. And so what they're doing is they're setting up their private interpretation as more authoritative than the interpretation of the Pope and bishops, which of course is, as I said at the beginning of this talk, the denial of the entire Catholic faith. The authority to interpret divine revelation belongs to the living hierarchy of the church. And the reason why the adjective living is so important is because who was Pope in 1200 or 1500 or 1800 is irrelevant. Our obedience is owed to the living hierarchy of the church. That is, the Pope and bishops who live while we live. 
Our obedience is owed to the living hierarchy of the church. That hierarchy with which a person is, or I should say, that hierarchy against which a person, a Catholic, makes a complaint is the authority in the interpretation of divine revelation and therefore an inferior's objection based on interpretation is irrational. The Pope and bishops cannot be wrong in the interpretation of divine revelation because that interpretation is in their authority. No one has any right to contradict or deny the interpretation of divine revelation of the Pope and bishops. And when I say bishops, I only mean bishops who are in communion with the Pope. Some maverick bishop can always be found. And, and these people always do this. They'll find some maverick bishop who's willing to talk against the Pope. And they'll make him their spokesperson. We see this in uh, the retired Archbishop Vigano. He's used as a mouthpiece of these wackos because he's willing as a bishop to speak against the Pope. But in speaking against the Pope, he separates himself from the magisterium. Because the bishop's authority is dependent on their communion with the Pope. So the fact that you can find a bishop or a priest or even a cardinal who separates himself from Unity with the Pope defeats the whole point of referring to a cardinal or a bishop or a priest. Because that priest or bishop or cardinal separates himself from the authority on which his ministry rests. If you would like to disobey the Pope and bishops then you must sacrifice all of the benefits possessed and offered by the Pope and bishops. And that's where you get into some very ugly territory. Are you going to deny that the Pope and bishops alone have authority over the sacraments of the Church? If you're going to disobey them, you're going to have to deny that the sacraments have been given by Christ to the Pope in the Church. You're going to have to deny the papacy itself. You're going to have to deny the magisterium. You're going to have to exalt your own private interpretation over that of the living hierarchy of the Church. You're not arguing truth against error. You're arguing interpretation against interpretation. You're arguing 
interpretation with no authority against authoritative interpretation. Now, if you're just persuaded that you're right, people start to talk about, well, this is a matter of conscience. That's fine. But you know how conscience is manifested. It's manifested by surrendering all of the benefits. It's manifested by surrendering all of the benefits. Not by disobeying in secret. Not by taking the benefits and disrespecting the authorities in secret. Not in taking the benefits but not doing what the authorities say to do. If you want to be like St. Francis and you honestly believe that your interpretation of sacred scripture or of sacred tradition is right and the interpretation of the Pope and bishops of sacred scripture or sacred tradition is false, then the way that you manifest your conviction or your conscientious objection is by forfeiting all of the benefits offered by the Pope and bishops through the Church. So, for example, the Pope and bishops are the keepers of the sacraments. This is why the recent document that was published by the Church is titled Traditionis Custodie, which means the keepers of the tradition. The Church is putting its foot down and making it very clear. You keep talking about tradition, but we are the keepers of tradition. The Pope and the bishops are the keepers, are the guardians of the tradition. The sacred tradition of the Church was not entrusted into the hands of some random individual lay people or even priests or even individual bishops. The sacred tradition was entrusted to the hierarchy of the Church and the supreme ruler of the Catholic Church is the Pope, the living Pope. And any objection to the papacy is just irrational. I could easily destroy any attempt to argue, oh, Francis isn't the real Pope. That's foolishness. And no matter what argument you make to try to discredit Francis, all you do is condemn whatever it is that you're trying to argue. You simply aren't thinking through it far enough. That's another topic of discussion. The sacraments have been entrusted to Francis and the living bishops in communion with him as far as your life is concerned. You have no right to talk about other popes, other bishops, other times, other places. Your pope is Pope Francis. 
The hierarchy of the church is the present living communion of bishops in unity with Pope Francis. To imagine that you are an obedient Catholic and refer to some past pope or past hierarchy or some other time is just a delusion. It's like arguing as a child that you're obedient if your father was someone else. That's just disobedience. You're never commanded to obey someone else's father. You're never commanded to obey someone else's boss or someone else's king. You're commanded to obey your father, your boss, your king, your pope and bishops. And that's why this is, this is delusional to think that I'm a loyal son of the Catholic Church because I am willing to obey what I think Pope Pius X intended. That's all interpretation. That's delusion. And you're deceived by this idea that someone can offer obedience to someone who's not present. The idea that because someone is not teaching what I like or teaching what I will or teaching what another Pope taught or allowing, permitting what another Pope permitted, therefore I have the right to disobey him, continue to seek the benefits from his hand is just delusion. You're deluded. You've been deceived and have, you have the devil, like he did to Eve in the Garden of Eden, telling you why it's okay for you to disobey. You can have the benefits and disobey. That's just temptation and deception 101. And you've fallen for it. If you're talking like that and you're following these people who are you know, speak disrespectfully about authorities, speak disrespectfully about the Pope or bishops, you speak disrespectfully about the President because you don't like him, you speak disrespectfully about your own parents because you don't agree with things that they do, you're deceived to think that your disobedience is okay. You've been deceived. If you're talking about how, well, that's not right and this is not right and he's wrong when he says this and he's wrong about this, you are suggesting that obedience is only owed when the understanding has been convinced of something and what's commanded is pleasing according to the judgment of the inferior. That's what you've been deceived to imagine. That no one has a right to tell you to do something that you don't like. And you can explain that in, with different words, and you can try to make it appear somehow rational or deliberative or conscientious, but if you have your hands in the cookie jar, you're proving yourself a liar. 
If you are not willing to renounce all of the benefits then you are simply disobedient. And that's sin. It doesn't matter what you call it or how you explain it away or how you describe it. It's not different from any other disobedience. You can think, well, this is different because I'm so smart or because this is politics or because this is democracy or because the Pope is not infallible. You're crazy. You've been deceived to think that there's ever any justification for disobedience without forfeiting all of the benefits sought from an authority. You're deceived. As I said, if your hand is in the cookie jar and you're talking about disobedience, you're a liar. You're not talking about conscientious issues. You're simply disobeying authority while remaining dependent upon that authority while continuing to take from that authority. The same thing that one of your kids might be doing while living with you, eating your food, wearing clothes you pay for, using utilities you pay for, and sitting in his room privately and disobeying you, talking disrespectfully about you with his brothers and sisters. As ugly as that disobedience is, you're doing the same thing. And you've just allowed yourself to be deceived into imagining that you're doing something different. And that's the deceptive danger of disobedience. When you're sitting on online listening to some layman or some so-called scholar or even a priest or a bishop badmouth the pope and explain to you why it's okay for you to disobey you're sitting and listening to a false teacher and you're just gobbling it all up, imagining that you're somehow more discerning than others, somehow wiser than others. You're doing exactly what Eve did in the Garden of Eden. She could justify her her disobedience and say, oh, but it was because I wanted to be wise. It was because I wanted to be more like God. That's why I ate the apple. Well, you could say whatever you want, but I told you, don't eat the apple. Period. You disobeyed. Period. All of this explanation, these million hours of YouTube videos and books and websites and articles. The reason why there is so much need for justification is because everyone knows that it's wrong. And at the end of that trail of activity online, there's always some false teacher making you suckers pay him for his false teaching.
And that's the deceptive danger of disobedience. Contrary to everything Christ did in his life, contrary to everything Christ taught us, contrary to everything the saints did in their lives, which made them saints, and believing that there's some justification for it. Now, the even greater danger of disobedience is that when you start to disobey, when you start to disobey, your disobedience begins to have all kinds of consequences and effects. For example, imagine these families where dad is, is gobbling up all of this false teaching and is justifying his own disrespectful talk against the Pope, disobedience to church authority, and he's doing so in the presence of his children. One day, he may, by the grace of God, realize that he's wrong. And he may be granted the grace of repentance. But he will be accountable for the effects of that sin in the lives of his children. He put it there. He can seek forgiveness for his own sins. But he cannot take back the effects of those sins. And what's dangerous about disobedience is even if we can be forgiven for our acts of disobedience, we can't necessarily take back the effects of the things that we've said or done or shared. And we're going to have to watch those effects play themselves out. And there's no way to reel them back in. And what many people have to deal with is that they go through a time in their life where they're disobedient and then God causes them to suffer painfully throughout their lives the consequences of decisions that they made even at one moment of their lives. And so even though there is mercy and forgiveness, there is still temporal punishment due to sin that will have to be paid either in this life or in purgatory, assuming a person actually repents and is reconciled to the church and to God through the church. But not only is disobedient dangerous spiritually for the person who is disobedient, but what should terrify us of disobedience is opening Pandora's box, as it were, becoming a portal through which all kind of evil enters into the world, and then having to suffer the punishments owed for those effects for the rest of our lives and possibly beyond the end of our life. That's what should make us always eager to err on the side of obedience. So, I'm sure that this talk raises a thousand new questions. I know that this is very practical and helpful. It's helpful in my own life. 
I know these issues are present and relevant. They may be emotional because you're wrapped up in something in the present that, to be honest, you shouldn't be wrapped up with, and that's partly your fault. But disobedience is the essential vice that Christians seek to avoid. Not just to God, which is simple because it's abstract and God is not really present. And He's merciful. He, he bears with our sins. He doesn't shoot us with lightning bolts every time we step out of line. So it's easy for people to say that they obey God and who knows what they do in secret when we're not looking. Only God knows. But what's difficult is to obey our superiors on earth because they're present. They have control over our lives. They control benefits we desire and so on. And the reason why that disobedience is difficult is just because it's real. And there are visible consequences that there often aren't when we sin against God in secret, at least in the short term. So, I hope that this frightens you a bit about the danger of the deceptiveness of disobedience, especially in the different contexts where it's common among Christians today. Political disobedience, domestic disobedience. You know, I could talk about wives disobeying their husbands, children disobeying parents, uh, adult children dishonoring their, adult, their older parents, political disobedience wrapped up with all of the confusion of democracy. And people imagine that democracy means that, that everyone is equal politically, everyone is equal with regard to laws and, and commands. Democracy taken out of its context, separated from constitution and law, just becomes anarchy. And many Christians live with a spirit of anarchy, imagining that they're Christians and, and, and members of a democracy, but they completely defy. The governing authorities dis detract them, they, they dishonor them, they defy them, disobey them, because, hey, I didn't vote for them, and they're crazy. These people are, have lost their minds. To think that a, a Christian in a democratic society can think that because he didn't vote for a candidate in an election, he's now justified to dishonor and disobey that elected official. That's, that's delusion. The same is present in the church with people defying the hierarchy of the church. It goes on and on. Employment in the office, at work and so on. So, I hope that's a helpful discussion. If you'd like to get into these issues in more detail, or you'd like me to devote a talk to one of these for a full hour, uh, just let me know, and we'll do that. If there are specific questions that arise that you'd like to think through together, let me know, and I'll use the time I have to address that issue. I hope that's helpful. God bless you all.